Gold Cord by Amy Carmichael, Chapter 10. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beast that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no scar? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole, can he have followed far, who has nor wound nor scar. Again, chapter 10, Scars in the Rock. On number, November 15th, 1907, Mabel Wade joined us. She was a trained nurse from Yorkshire, and she had about her something of her own moors with their transparent air and the beauty of Heather. Have I been here for only one day, she said as we came back to the house after our first talk together. So have other gifts of God said after perhaps a short hour or two with us. It is as if I have found my spirit's home, said one. Unity, like prayer, like life, may be compared to a musical chord. And I think it must be that our God, who knows beforehand whom he has chosen for us, tempers, and tunes the one to the other long before we meet in the flesh. Constantly we are astonished at the loving, lovely commingling of the various notes that make up our chord. It must be of him. And now we built a new nursery, and in 1908 recalled the Nepur infants. The nurse instinct in Mabel Wade, accustomed to leave responsibilities to doctors, was tried in those days when we had only medical books to guide us. For children never do keep inside the pages of a book and a young convert girl, the brownie we called her in the story from the forest, died suddenly of heart disease. It was the nurse's first experience of death without a doctor. It came to her with a sense of shock that we had nothing to do when a person died but bury her. There were no formalities of any sort. Life was simple then. It is gradually becoming a little more complex than it was when both arrivals and departures were affected without official fuss. By this time, Mrs. Walker was back in India and the middle-aged babies, who soon began to be called Tedlets because they were so comically like teddy bears, had won her heart. She and her husband, too, had been troubled about the very firm tying of our feet. But upon Mr. Walker's return, he had written to Indian converts who knew the underworld of India. And after he had read the ghastly letters that came in reply, he ceased to doubt. It was more than worthwhile to turn from all else he felt and save the children. And now that the babies were beginning to grow old enough for school, he and we prayed for a trained Indian teacher, an evangelist at heart, for it is God's truth that one loving spirit sets others on fire. 
and a teacher was offered to us who appeared to be all that we wanted. And the hardest thing we had to do that year was to return her to the one who had so kindly sent her to us. Another came, but we could not use her either, and we had to close the kindergarten. Looking back, I think of our apparent ingratitude to the friends who were so good as to try to help us as quite the most painful part of the matter. We seemed to be so deplorably fastidious that we could only wonder they went on being friends with us, as indeed they did. But it was as though something in the place acted as touchstone and declared what was, as apart from what seemed to be, in these whom we would so gladly have used because we needed them so much. In each case, truth was the rock on which they foundered. If our children were to grow up truthful, they must be taught by those who had a regard for truth and not just a casual regard, a delicate regard. On this point, we were adamant. It was then we began to know that we were committed to things that we must not expect everyone to understand. It would not be fair to expect it. And we learned that to cling to a creature is to fall with a sliding creature. Our story may find its way to someone who must do what may seem foolish. Narrow-minded is the usual adjective. It is well to know that when the devil finds that his fiery darts fall harmless, sometimes he plucks from his quiver the light-feathered arrow of a smile. But the only way of peace is to go on quietly. So we went and tried to obey our light. That light, like the headlights of a car, threw a steady beam far down the road and showed what lay ahead with an unescapable distinctness. Hardness lay ahead. The child in the family, whether Hindu or Christian, has natural shelters provided. No love of ours could make up for these. So we were forced to be more than ordinary, careful about the foundations of character. And we wanted those foundations to be laid in truth. One day, about that time, a guest who afterwards became a beloved fellow worker gathered the children together and told them a fairy story. And then we discovered, I had hardly realized it before, that I had instinctively left those tales and had begun with the far more magical true fairy stories that were strewn about everywhere just waiting to be told. And we saw no reason to change. It was good when the amazed child asked, Me thana? Is it true indeed? To be able to answer, Me than, true indeed. And those true fairy tales were so wonderful and so beautiful that I do not think our little lovables lost anything of the silvery glamour that should make the first years of childhood like moonlit water to look back upon, or the golden sparkle either that is sunlight on that same water. For several years, until better help came, we carried on ourselves in a simple way, not great enough to dignify by the name school. Mabel Wade was immersed in Tamil and later in nursing, or she would have been a great ally. Somehow she managed to make time for singing and a delightful musical drill. 
And after a while indoors, we used to go out into the garden. It was wonderland to the children. We never suggested questions and never answered any that they did not ask. We had as much as we could do to find answers to those they did ask, but we, as it were, ran to meet their minds in welcome. It was a merry kind of schooling and left many gaps, but it had some uses. Color was one of the chief wonders. The dancing, sparkling, chattering things would stand silent before the pure enchantment of a rose. How did the color come? The microscope showed them why leaves looked green. The view of rolling emerald balls and oblong crystal cells was an exciting discovery, though how they come and how they go, does anybody know? As their song said. For songs began to be needed about that time. It did seem well to teach them English, and we were given English songbooks because of the prettiest things. But the matter was too foreign for young Indian children, just as, as the stuff of which our Indian songs were made would have been foreign to English children. So we had to make our own, and they came of themselves as they were needed. Games were a great feature. When the children were a little older, the delightful rotifer they saw through the microscope whirling his fairy wheels and a drop of water suggested possibilities. There is a large deep well in the garden, so why not be rotifiers? Into it then they plunged. They had already learned to swim. And treading water, they circled about waving twinkling fingers above their heads for cilia, patting their little loricas and walking delicately on their toes, supposed to be sticky little, sticky like the rotifers. We had different types, eager and dull, sparkling and dreamy, and the dreamiest one had a nonsense rhyme all to herself, which shall go in here to lighten this rather serious book a little. Hurry, scurry, worry, flurry, such a fuss and such a hurry. Down I slid by a private stair to a room in a forest of maiden hair. The glistening walls were of mother of pearl. The roof was a moonstone, the delicate twirl. Of a kind of coiled ladder sprang up from the floor. Of, of it loveliest opal. The low swinging door had a way of opening silently to people like you and me. In the room was a sea pool made in a hollow and cavern slab of jade and coral polyps and coralline spread their pink and purple and sea things fed each in his fashion. The room like a shell curved softly and smoothly for lamp there fell a great white Indian star from the sky and into that room slipped I. Hurry, scurry, worry, flurry. Where's the child? Catch her, hurry. Absent-minded again? My ear thought that it heard, but it did not hear really and properly, you know, for I was slipping and sliding so that I couldn't listen. At last I curled, safe in my dear little inside world, in the cool green forest of maidenhair fern, while they clawed the outside of me, said, Come, learn your Tamil grammar and do your sums. But I was away where nobody comes, but foolish people like you and me, 
who are far, far from what they should be. It was sometimes strange. It is so still to enter into all this abandon of gaiety with Rome burning at our gates. But life is as various as shells on the seashore or flowers in the field. And there has been this outcome of those days. Many who played together then have grown up to help to snatch their helpless little sisters out of the flames. Perhaps it is because Rome is so near and the heat of the fire and the smell of the smoke are so much with us that we have never been led to go on to higher education. When a keen girl student recovering from a long illness began to learn Greek for recreation, it was that she might be able to study her New Testament better and so do more for the younger ones. We never had time for what, to us, would have been luxury. And as they grew older, we tried by means of traveling on the king's business and with a splendid help of books to enlarge our children's minds so that they would be always eager to learn more. And we learned more than we taught. One day we took the children to see a goldsmith refine gold after the ancient manner of the East. He was sitting beside his little charcoal fire. He shall sit as a refiner. The gold or silversmith never leaves his crucible once it is one, once it is one the fire. In the red glow lay a common curved roof tile. Another tile covered it like a lid. This was the crucible. In it was the medicine made of salt, tamarind fruit, and burnt brick dust, and embedded in it was the gold. The medicine does its appointed work on the gold. Then the fire eats it, and the goldsmith lifts the gold out with a pair of tongs, lets it cool, rubs it between his fingers, and if not satisfied, puts it back again in fresh medicine. This time he blows the fire hotter than it was before. And each time he puts the gold into the crucible, the heat of the fire is increased. It could not bear it so hot at first, but it can bear it now. What would have destroyed it then helps it now. How do you know when the gold is purified? We asked him. And he answered, when I can see my face in it, the liquid gold in the crucible, then it is pure. All along, we were wonderfully helped through a Sabbath rest. And such like phrases seemed to smile a trifle ironically as they passed us by. We learned to sleep lightly with one ear open. But often we were given good sleep. And if danger threatened, the children's angels, we think, were sent to waken us. Once in a nursery about 30 yards from the bungalow, a dozen babies were asleep in their hammocks. The hammock, which is the universal South Indian cradle, is a long strip of white cotton knotted to a rope thrown over a beam. To make it safer, we sew tapes on either side of the strip of cotton and tie them across to keep the babies from tumbling out. That night, a six-months-old six had somehow pushed her head through the space between the tapes and swung around. How she managed it, who can tell? But she was strangling and could not cry. 
It was then that, as it were, a touch woke me, and thinking that something must be wrong somewhere, I got up and was on my way to the nearest, nearest nursery when I stopped for a sleepy and hesitating moment under a tamarind tree, whence I could see that nursery veranda. There was no sound, not even a bird or bat in the night. The lantern was burning low, nothing was moving, no child was crying. It must be a mistake, I said to myself, but somehow could not go back. I hastened on to the nursery and was just in time to cut the tapes. Little Balana was choking. There was another. The nurse who was with us then was taking care of Tara, who was ill, and she said that the baby had not called. But there was a call, and again things were so that a few minutes more would have seen a little life gone. And many and many a time our nurse, Mabel Wade, was just in time to save a child from serious accident. We grew to count on the angels. And now that these children have grown up to give that unpurchasable thing, loving and loyal service, we do not wonder that their angels took such care of them. And we are grateful to them. The work committed to us has now grown beyond our powers. But these, our first dear children, are raising up about us. And those unseen guardians of their childhood must, I think, feel repaid for their vigils by little white hammocks, and for many a walk across to our rooms at night to call us to come. And we too have been a thousandfold repaid for anything we ever did. The dear master can never be weary again by the side of any well, but we may be weary by the side of many for him. The sweet little word from Hudson Taylor comes to mind as we think of those days. How good how very good it was to be allowed to sit on that well side with him. Those were years of rigid economies, for though we were never burdened about funds, we thought in terms of pence, not shillings, much less pounds. Receipts for gifts were often gummed on the back of postcards to save stamps and stationery, and everything else was done in that careful spirit. But no one knew that we were at times almost in straits. They only knew that all our needs were supplied, for we told them so, and it was true. The times of shortness were for the proving of faith. The end of almost each year saw us with something over. It had not mattered that people did not know. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks, for that thy name is near thy wondrous works declare. <clears throat> Those years were happy, for many a little wounded life was lifted up into happiness and health, and the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. A little poem. Look, the bud is on the bough. Look, tis green where thou didst plow. Listen, tramp of little feet, call of little lambs that bleat. Bleat, hark to it, oh verily, nothing is too good to be. And at times, when we were threatened in various ways by the fatigues and cumbrance of the flesh, these words came and reinforced us. If the spirit of him 
that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. We asked for that as a present experience, and I believe received in some measure a life that was quickened and sustained for the sake of the children. For the word is eternally true. In the day when I cried, thou answered me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. Looking back at the, as, at the work as it shaped with its unaccountable refusals, and withdrawals, its lessons of reliance upon the invisible alone, we see it like the mountainside that is familiar to many of us now, for it stands above our forest house. There is apparent change in that mountain. The colors of the grass and the trees vary with every swift lightning and shadowing of sky and air, mists in the clefts and hollows, torrents tearing down the face of the rocks. The sweep of the seasons, change is in each of these. But there are scars in the rock, and there is something changeless about a scar in the rock. The ways of our work may change. The colors, the apparent shapes, new conditions will call for new decisions. But the elemental things, the convictions, which are part of its creation, these will remain. Stuff up the scars with brushwood. Soften their firm lines. Try to make them just a little more decorative, and the mountain will not be the mountain that you know. But we know that it is not enough to have scars in the rock. The work will never go deeper than we have gone ourselves. I bear in my body the marks. I bear branded on my body the scars of Jesus as my master. How often then and since we have been shamed by this word. How often we have pondered the paragraph beginning in stripes and imprisonments, in tumults and labors, and felt unworthy to be called followers of the crucified. Can he have followed far who has not wound nor scar? End of chapter 10.